What's going on, everyone? Welcome into the newest episode of Scoing Long. I'm your host, Zach Neal. We're focusing on basketball today. I am happy to bring in Matt Prem from 247 Sports Duck Territory and the Austin Audibles podcast. We are going to look at the Ducks men's basketball program through a broad lens now that the season is over. We'll look at what went right, what went wrong, and kind of where they go from here. As you know, football is still on break until early next week, so we will get back onto the gridiron when that does return. But for now, let's wrap up the season on the hardwood. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get into it. All right, we've got Matt Prem here on the Scoing Long podcast. Like I said in the intro, you can find all of his great work at Duck Territory and on the Austin Audible's podcast with Eric Scopel and Jared Mack. Uh, I also want to go ahead and plug your interview with Dana Rubenstein on the Solid Verbal podcast. That was a really fun listen to and uh, a really good conversation about Dan Landing and the Ducks. So with that being said, welcome in, Matt. Uh, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Good, man. I appreciate that. How you- Things are good. Uh, spring break's here and... Uh- we're ready for spring football in a couple of days, right? Yes, absolutely. We're we're waiting for to get back to the HDC and get out there and watch a little bit of practice. Yeah. But um, as we record this, it's Wednesday morning, and I can say with probably about a hundred percent confidence that both Matt and I have checked our weather apps and see that this afternoon the sun's supposed to be out and it's supposed to be one of the nicer, <laughs> one of the nicer days we've we've had in Eugene in a little bit. So. Um, I'm sure that both of us, I know myself, will be out on the golf course in a matter of hours, uh, and I think Matt probably will too. So (laughs) am I I correct in that assumption? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I will be out there uh, 445. There you go. I think I've got 224 is my time. So (laughs) with with all that being said, let's let's dig into this Oregon season and and get in and out and get a little wrap up on on the Oregon basketball season. So. Uh, you had a great breakdown. I think it was last week with Jared Mack on your podcast where, uh, you know, it's safe to say that it was a relatively disappointing year. I think that that's fair to say. I don't think that's too harsh for the program. I know that the there's been such a bar that's been set for this program over the past several years under Dana Altman that, you know, missing out on the NCAA tournament, going to the NIT, it's, it's relatively disappointing. Um, but even even Dane Alman admitted when after the last game that they set the bar at Sweet 16. I mean, if they don't make the Sweet 16, he I mean he doesn't think that it was a successful season. So um, I I just I don't know. We're we're going to get into some of his comments about fan support a little bit later, and all of that came out um, from you know one of the more entertaining Dane Alman press conferences I think we've ever been to. But first, I want to ask kind of an overarching question: What do you what are you going to remember this season as a couple of years down the road? I know that when we think about last year, uh, we know that there was some problems with maybe chemistry in the locker room and, and stuff like that with, with players meshing. What do you think we're going to remember this season for? Uh, injuries. It, I, I think this is 2019-2020 season was what if COVID didn't end that year? Does Peyton Pritchard carry the Ducks to a Final Four. I think that was certainly possible. I think a Sweet 16, anything less than a Sweet 16 would have felt like a disappointment. Um, And the Elite Eight was very realistic for Oregon. Um, COVID had that year as a what if. And I think what if is another good term for this season. Um, What if Oregon didn't deal with all the injuries that they had to deal with. Jermaine Kuznard, Keyshawn Bartholomew, uh, Will Richardson, and Fale Dante, and Nate Biddle, um, all guys that were basically starters for you this season or were supposed to be starters uh, for you this season. They missed a combined 60 games. Um, That's just really hard to overcome. Um, Oregon recruited the depth. They recruited the talent, and they got so decimated by injury that they couldn't overcome it. Um, I, I think that, for me, is w- what happens if this team doesn't get hurt. Do, do they lose to UC Irvine the second game of the season if they had Jermaine Kuznard available and his defense in a game in which 
Uh, UC Irvine's top guard went crazy on three pointers. Do they lose um, to Utah Valley if they had Kuznard and if they had uh, Keychon Bartholomew um, for that game? Uh, I don't think they do. Um, and if they win those two games alone, this is a tournament team. Um, they lost by 27 at Colorado. They had a couple guys just coming back from injury. Um, they lost at home to Arizona State when, again, ASU shot the lights out. They were like in, insanely uh, prolific from three, and Oregon was without some of their their guys, or they were just starting to bring back some of their guys. So I, I think this year is defined as what if. I, I don't think there was chemistry issues. Um, I think the pieces fit to an extent. I don't know if we can sit here and say that they were a perfect fit. Like each player fit, you know, complimentary of, of the other guys, but they had enough talent to be a tournament team. They didn't play it well enough. They didn't play consistently well enough uh, to play like one. I think a large part of that is on the players and on the coaching staff, but I think also equally a large part of that is just injuries. It derailed the season from the very beginning. Yeah, I definitely agree that the injuries early on were, were certainly an issue. But part of me still thinks that, you know, even if you had Keyshawn early on and you had Jermaine, you, you made it to the tournament because you don't lose that UC Irvine or the Utah Valley game. We still saw this team at the end of the year struggling. I mean, we, we watched that Wisconsin game and we saw them miss, I think, eight free throws in the a game that they lost by, I forget how many points, but what's probably, I think, three points or something like that. So yeah. I don't know that the lack of injuries in an alternative universe is what would have made them take that next step. I still think it probably would have been a relatively disappointing season. Cause I don't know that, you know, they were playing at the peak of their powers at the end of the season when they were, I know they still weren't completely healthy. They didn't have Richardson or Kuznard or, or Dante, but um, I think that yes, injuries were a major, major factor this year, but it still feels like they were still missing one of those those key pieces that uh, that we've come to to know from a Dane Altman team. Kind of on a similar topic, now that it's officially over, how are you going to remember the the Will Richardson era in Eugene? I know that he's received a lot of criticism, uh, some fair, some not, and you are one of many people that's been pretty vocal on social media defending him and saying that you know there's there's so many things that he does that don't show up in the box score and on nights when he you know doesn't take many shots doesn't score many points he's still leading the team in a way that that we haven't seen a lot of people do but um, I just I I don't know how I will remember his career down the road but I'm just curious what you think that his career will look like for the Ducks uh, once we kind of have a a chance to to separate from it and look back on it. 1,500 point score. Um, part of that's five years of playing basketball at Oregon. Um, that's still an accomplishment, though. He averaged double digits in points four of those five seasons. Uh, was a career three point percentage shooter, 37.6%. Um, I think the way I would describe him is. He never once got in trouble off the court, whether that was with the program or whether that was legally. Um, He never really embarrassed the program on or off the court um, and some kind of action that's away from playing a basketball game. Um, And I don't even think he really embarrassed the program with his play either. So he wasn't Peyton Pritchard. He wasn't an All-American point guard. I I think he had insanely difficult uh, expectations to live up to and was asked to be a player that in the grand scheme of things, when you look back at it, he wasn't meant to be. Uh, He was asked after Peyton Pritchard left to kind of become the team's go-to star point guard, the next NBA guy for the Ducks. Uh, Someone that could turn into an All-American at that position. And that wasn't his role. I I think he is a very, very, very good third option on your team. And the stats show that. His freshman year in 18-19, or excuse me, his two best years was his sophomore year in 2019 and 2020. And his real junior year in 2021. Uh, And... Both those seasons, he was the team's kind of de facto third option. 
His sophomore year, he sat next to Peyton Pritchard and Chris Duarte. There was also Anthony Mathis, who kind of fluctuated in between that role as well. Uh, in 2020-2021, which is his junior year, he was opposite Chris Duarte, Eugene Amarui, and then LJ Figueroa, who's also in the G League right now, was also kind of in that mix, you know, fluctuating back and forth. Those two seasons were Will Richardson's best years, I think. Um, he shot 46%, basically 47% as a sophomore from three, shot 40% as a junior from three. Both years, he averaged over 11 points. Uh, he, he played a lot. He played 30 minutes or more in both those games. Um, I think this is just a guy that we, the fan, we, the media, the fan base, uh, the, the program, they needed more out of Will Richardson. And he had to, he had to fill a role that he wasn't meant to be. And, you know, we thought maybe he would do that a little bit when we saw it in spurts as a senior in 21, 22, this season, there were, there were certainly moments, um, in which he showcased that. I mean, he had 26 uh, in, a, in a game against Utah Valley. I think that was like his season high. Or maybe it was – no, it was Michigan State when he had 28. Um, he had a triple-double uh, this season. Uh, he was very, you know, huge for Oregon uh, in that PK-85 when he had to basically play the entire game, every game. Um, his, his 19 points and eight assists against Villanova was – masterful uh and he played 39 of the 40 available minutes in that one um i i think he had a a negative perception towards the end of his career with the oregon fan base i think that's unfortunate i understand the fans are frustrated with how he played but if your biggest gripe is he's not peyton pritchard or he's not chris duarte um and he's not an all-american and he's not a first round nba draft pick that means you pr- you still had a pretty good career. Yeah, I think what what you said early on is a really good way to say it is that he he just kind of dealt with these these huge expectations coming in, and he reminds me a lot of you know this team in general in in twenty twenty two twenty three that you know in a vacuum his career is is really great in a vacuum yeah. this season is a, a successful season, but when you've got the track record in a program of going to sweet 16s and elite eights and a final four, and you've won 20 plus games for 13 years, you know, then when you have a relative down season, that's not to say that Will Richardson is, is a down player, but when you compare it to someone like Peyton Pritchard or, you know, a team leader like Dylan Brooks or, or uh, Jordan Bell, someone like that, it's, it's kind of understandable that, you know, fans get a little bit, I guess, greedy would be the word and just, just wishing that they got a little bit more from him. So, um, I I like that he got the Oregon record for most minutes played because um, I feel or m- not most minutes most games played because I feel like that puts him he belongs in Oregon record books somewhere because he did have a really yeah. solid career and he does belong in Oregon history and while I'm sure there's there's other ways that he wanted to make the record book maybe <laughs> making deep NCAA tournament runs this is something where he will be remembered going forward. Well, he was on two Sweet Sixteen teams. That I mean that's, that's true. That yes, gets lost. He, that gets lost in people's memories is that he was on two Sweet Sixteen teams. He won the league twice. Um, you know, so he's been part of really good teams. He's just not been the number one elite superstar guard that the expectations were placed on him. Um, there was just a natural assumption that you know when. Pritchard left and then Duarte left, uh, he would step into that role and it just never happened, which is unfortunate. I mean, they needed him to do that. And he was not good in that role. Like, I I think it's fair to say like when he had to be elite, he was not consistent enough to to do that. And um, you could argue that, you know, his playing style towards the end of his career, um, ball dominant type stuff, maybe, hindered the flow of the offense a little bit you know like he's not without fault no doubt about it but I, I just think um if, if your biggest gripe is a kid just wasn't an all-american like that it, it's okay he he's a good player he's not a great player he's not an elite player at Oregon um but he's still someone that should be a you know praised and accomplished and remembered for what he he helped to do I agree with that and I'll be very curious to see if the if the fan base kind of learns from their their 
out of whack expectations to a certain point. I mean, Will Richardson gone. I know that we don't really quite know what the Ducks are going to do at point guard next year. You've got Jackson Shellstad coming in. I fear that he's going to kind of suffer not the same fate as Will Richardson, but the same expectations because he's already had all of this Peyton Pritchard hype thrown upon him because of the oh the expectations. Like he's yeah. if he's anything short of Peyton Pritchard, he's going to be seen as a failure in the fan base's eyes, which is really unfortunate because I think that he's going to be a solid solid player, have a great career. But you know that's a that's a really high bar to ask a true freshman to meet. Yeah. Pay, uh... Jackson Shelstead's expectations are already sky high. And and look, like back to to Will's expectations, like this was still a guy that was a like a top 50 recruit. So <laughs> it's natural to look at him and to think, you know, coming out of high school when he came out of Oak Hill, like, hey, this is a top 50 guy, a top 10 player at his position. He was rated as a shooting guard coming out of high school, ended up playing point guard. Um, but this is a guy that that was supposed to be, you know, one of the best players in the country. And Shellstead is right around the same position ranking um, as Will Richardson was coming out of high school. You look at Shellstead; he's 32nd in the country. He's the eighth best point guard uh, in the, you know, the eighth best player at his position. Um, his expectations are already through the roof and they're going to be at an unfair clip. Um, like you said, like I, I'm in t- total agreement. Like if he doesn't come out and average 10 points and four assists and like one or two turnovers and doesn't play 24 or 25 minutes a game, there's going to be a subset of the fan base, which I think is incredibly unfair towards Shellstead, that are going to call that a disappointment and are going to look at that and be like, oh, well, he's he's not as good as as what they should have been. Uh, what he should have been like, there's something wrong. Like maybe he's just not as good. I don't know. Like, and that's, that's disappointing to think about. Um, Maybe the best point. I mean, look, Peyton Pritchard, like Peyton Pritchard or Luke Ridnauer are the best point guards in program history. In my opinion, Um, Ridnauer's freshman year was like, he won pack 10 player of the year. He played 30 minutes a game. Uh, I think he started all 28 games at Oregon played, but it was like seven points and, and three or four rebounds a game. It, it wasn't um, these astronomically high insane numbers uh, in his first season. Peyton Pritchard basically did the same thing. You know, he, I think he started, I want to say like 29 or 30 games of the 39 games that Oregon played. He averaged like right around 30 minutes. And he averaged seven points and like three assists a game. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And Peyton averaged <clears throat> seven points, three rebounds, and three assists a game. Like that's a good season. Mm-hmm. And Peyton's role was different than, than Ridnauer's. Ridnauer had to be like one of the guys. Peyton didn't have to be one of the guys, um, like the top guys on the team. He he deferred to Brooks, Dorsey. Ennis Bell Boucher before it got to him. What's Jackson's role going to be like next season? Like, is he going to have to be kind of like Ridnauer, where you're viewed as a top two or three player on your team, or is he going to have to be viewed like what Will was and and what Peyton was their freshman years? Kind of a complimentary piece. I think it's probably best for Oregon if all three freshmen that they've signed, Mookie Cook. Kwame Evans, Jackson Shellstead, if if they can elevate the, the roster around those guys so none of them have to be a top two or three go-to player on your team, that's when your freshmen will have good seasons. That's when your team has a good season. Because if you look at the tournament, hardly anyone goes deep into the tournament with freshmen being your top two or three players. Like mm-hmm. You still need those guys to be good, no doubt about it, but – if Oregon's going to have a good season, one of those three maybe is like your third best, you know, your third go-to scorer, and the other two are maybe like five and six. They have to yeah. play, though. They all have to play. Real quick, I want to pause the interview with Matt to interject and play you a clip of the audio from Dana Altman after 
Oregon's loss to Wisconsin uh, in the NIT. Matt and I talk about it a lot coming up in that interview. It was very revealing from Altman, kind of showing us a side of him that we haven't really seen before, to be completely honest. Um, a lot of you may have already heard this before, but for those of you who haven't heard what Altman had to say, here it is. You know, we got to make some changes. We, you know, we're not good enough. You know, either we're not coaching good enough, players aren't good enough, we're just not good enough. And we got to get better. So if that means changing personnel, if that means getting in the gym more, um, but we're not good enough. So uh, I've got to start with me. I'm not good enough. Um, and then we go right down the list. But, you know, 20, what are we, 21 and 15 or whatever we are, I, I'm not good enough. You know, you see the commitment of Wisconsin makes. You know, they get their cheerleaders, their band. You know, it's, you know, and we, we make a commitment. Don't get me wrong here. But, I mean, you can just see, you know, how important it is. And it was important to them. It was important to me. You know, and, and um, uh, you know, I was, you know, what the heck. We, we should have more people here tonight. All right? I mean, these, these guys have played hard. Okay. Uh, 3,300 people, you know, uh, it's not good enough. You know, and if it's me, uh, then get rid of me. If, if you need somebody else to uh, be a promoter, do something. But 3,300 people is embarrassing. It, re it really is. I'm not in a very good mood, you can tell that. But, uh, <laughs> but. speak to a season long issue because this was the lowest attendance you guys have had. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like you're just saying. That and that's what I'm saying, James. If it's me, then make the change. Make the change. Some somebody will hire me somewhere. I'll go coach junior college ball again. I love junior college ball. Those guys, those guys were dogs. They wanted to be in the gym all the time. All right, I love coaching. But 3,300 people for Wisconsin. I I was disappointed. So, and I appreciate the people who came. That's the 3,300 people who did come. Great. I I sure appreciate it. And, uh, uh, you know, the people who have stuck with us. And, um, but, again, you know, I'm, I'm not a promoter. You know, I'm not out in the public. Uh, I don't have the Twitter and all the stuff. Uh, you know, my job's to coach. My job's to get the, the team and coach them. You know, I'm not out there, you know, God, I'm so bad at, at promoting and doing those things. Uh, but... You know, we we've we have won 20 games for a long time, and we have been in postseason 13 years in a row. And I know, hey, this is the NIT; it's not the NCAA. I understand that. I understand that. But uh, uh, our guys work hard, and uh, and just a little disappointed. But they're disappointed in us. We didn't win, and and so it, it works both ways. We didn't win enough games, so I understand the fans' disappointment. Um, but again. Uh, you know, I want guys that want to be here and staff that wants to be here. I want to be here, uh, but I want our fans to to want to be here too. Let's touch on Altman's comments on the lack of fan support. Yeah. They've made the rounds by now. Obviously, you've talked about it a lot on your podcast. It became a bit of a topic nationally in the college basketball world, and I think understandably so. To me. I see both sides of it. I totally understand him wanting more loyalty from the fan base that, you know, comes with the the relative success that he's had. We Like we've said, they've got uh, 13 straight years of 20-plus wins. They've made several deep tournament runs. Um, but I also see the perspective from the fan base where, you know, this, like we said earlier, the bar for him and for the fan base, I think, is Sweet 16. And if they're not reaching that, then fans might, tune out a little bit and this was the second straight year where they didn't reach that and they kind of looked disjointed along the way and I think while there were some games this year where the atmosphere inside Matt Knight Arena was was actually really electric and, and was really fun um, I I kind of get why that that Tuesday night game against Wisconsin although it was a technically a postseason game and against a Big Ten opponent I, I understand why only I forget the number but 3,000 something fans showed up so uh, where do you stand on all of this? Um, I understand they weren't good. I understand that they were inconsistent. Um, but I don't think ever Dana came out and said that 
collectively, this team wasn't giving good effort. Um, <laughs> you know, he never really came out and said, you know, collectively, I've really got to get these guys to play hard. I've really got to get these guys um, to try, to give the effort that's needed to win. Um, certainly that was said about Kalel Ware, um, but that wasn't said really about any other player on this roster. And so um, I tend to land more with Dana's complaints than simply just, well, they weren't good. And this is the second year in a row that they haven't been good. So, you know, it's on them. It's their fault. I don't think the marketing of the program was very good. Um, I don't think the, and it hasn't been good for, in my opinion, years. Um, I don't think there's a connection with the community and the players. And I think there's no one that can raise their hand that's associated with the University of Oregon basketball that can raise their hand and say, I'm not at fault for that aspect. I, I think the head coach needs to do a better job of getting himself into the public eye. I think the, the players need to be doing a better job of having opportunities and then following through with those opportunities of interacting and connecting with, most importantly, the youth in the community. Um, and I think the school itself needs to do a better job of making a better connection with the fan and the player so that you can form these relationships. Because look, the reality is, is that fans say like, well, they aren't good and the transfer portals in and out and yada, yada, yada. This team had the most returning talent than the final four team had. They had two, four years guys that were starters for multiple seasons coming into this season and Will Richardson and Fale Dante. They had Quincy Guerrier, who was a returning starter from the year before. They also had Rivaldo Soros, who was like your sixth man last season, going into a starting role as well. They had a five-star big man entering his second year in the program, and Nate Biddle, who's also from the state of Oregon. <laughs> you had Luke Wehr, who was – look, Luke Wehr is not a, an, an amazing player, but the fans appreciate his effort and his play this season. That was no doubt about it. And that is like his fourth season. So, like, to sit here and say, well, I don't know who any of these guys are as a fan is wrong. That just means, A, the school hasn't done a good job of connecting the fan base, or, B, the fan hasn't done a good good enough effort to make a conscious effort to get to know who this team is because they had a lot of returning talent. Like, like three starters from last year's team, and two of them are four-year guys. You know, in Will's case, he was a fifth-year guy. So, like... And I think Altman's comments, it didn't just come from the Wisconsin game. Um, it it was something that's been building up for years. Uh, attendance is down year over year in, in league play five years in a row for Oregon. Um, that's well before the last two seasons of, of NIT appearances. Um, attendance is down five out of the last six years overall. Um, this season was the worst year ever for Dana Altman's time at Oregon for a season ticket or for a per game average. And fans talk all the time about where's the loyalty with players? How come players aren't showing up and sticking around with Oregon and being able to work through the adversity and get through times? That goes on them too. Like Dana Altman's had 13 winning, has had 13 seasons with 20 or more wins. You can't combine the rest of the 21 seasons in program history to equal that number. And so he's consistently building a winner. He's made the NCAA tournament seven times. He's made the Sweet 16 or better five times. Uh, He has one other year in which they would have probably been a Sweet 16 team if not for COVID shutting it down. Mm -hmm. He's had all Americans. He's had nine NBA draft picks or guys that get onto an NBA roster. And for the first time, really – when the program has legit expectations two years in a row now, they don't don't make those expectations. I think that was kind of Altman being like, you guys want loyalty with the players. You also have to show it. When we're not playing good, we need you still to be here, you know, to show up for us. And I think that's what that kind of conversation was about. I think that's a, that last thing you said is the perfect way to say it is that I think a lot of fans kind of need to take a look at themselves before criticizing, you know, the product, because I'm sure you saw it as well. A lot of fans were saying, you know, 
in this transfer portal era, there's just there's not players that we know as well. And like you said, there's so many returners on this team. This team of of any that we've had in in recent years, you should know almost every guy on the roster. You should know them pretty well. And you and Jared had a really good talk on your podcast. I believe it was last week about fans talking about the the Matt Court experience compared to the Matt Knight experience. And yes, there's this aura around around Matt Court. And yes, it, it was a fun place to watch games. And when it was when it was good, it was really really good. But people saying that it's so much better than Matt Knight and that it's that Matt Knight doesn't even compare. It's like well. Matt Court was kind of crappy <laughs> near the end. It was not a nice facility. It was really, it, it felt unsafe at times. It was dirty. It was kind of disgusting. And while, yes, the atmosphere was great and you felt like you were sitting right on top of the court, even up in the, the third level, uh, it was, you know, it's, I I really like Matt Knight. I, I have not been there a ton to watch as a fan. We're usually there, of course, as media members, but, you know, it's a, it's a fun arena and it's a, I think it's a, a great, uh, place for them to play and if the fans showed out and if they really packed that game i mean we've been to several games i remember obviously the ucla game with dylan brooks where he on a december 28th back in i forget what year that was but when he had that game winner over ucla that's one of the most lively sporting events i've ever been at and one of the the coolest atmospheres because you know and it was at mad night and that's because fans showed out and and really cared and so um, I think going forward, if if they can kind of take stock of where they're at in their fandom and how much they want to to put in, um, it's really going to help this team going forward. I mean, winning winning solves all those problems, that, and that has to be. You know, I, I don't want to sit here and say mm-hmm. it's only on the fans. Like Oregon needs to be better, um, but the data, the hard line data, shows that even when Oregon has been really good attendance is starting to dip. And so that's where it goes back to what I was saying. Like there's not one person that's associated with Oregon men's basketball that can raise their hand and say, I'm doing a perfect job. In my opinion, at least I'm doing a perfect job. I don't have to really get better at anything I'm doing. I think it's a full scope. You have to look at everything that needs to happen, whether it's game day operations, whether it's media access, whether it's marketing, whether it's the coaching staff performing better, where it's getting the, the coaches to be better, to get the players to be better. Everyone across the line needs to be better. And I'm not, and this makes it sound like this program is broken. I don't think this program is broken yeah, at all. Not at all. Um, you know, like there's some fine tweaks that have gotten out of line. It's like just like taking your car in to get an alignment and, mm-hmm. you know, maintenance. Now, there's some things that need to get changed, there's some things that need to get realigned here. I think they will. And next season has the potential to be a really special year because if the thing if if the dominoes fall in the way that they could, maybe you get and follow Dante back. You know uh Biddle's back, you know Kuznard's back, Bartholomew is pretty much back. Probably so you've back. got four guys you've got four guys right there, all have starting experience or have been your sixth man. Maybe one or one of Quincy Geary and Rivaldo Soros come back, and those are discussions for another time, but or down the road on a show. But one of those guys maybe comes back, or maybe if they both leave, which is very possible, mm-hmm. you still have a core of four guys plus a fifth in Luke Wer, where you've got you've got your hustle energy guy in Luke Wer, you've got your big man in Dante, who's an all conference player, would be his fifth year in the program. You've got Biddle, who's going to be a, fi- a third-year five-star guy who really turned it on at the end of the season. Yeah, I did. Kuznard is, was really good as a shooting guard this past season. And Bartholomew, I don't know if people realize this. People talk about like the, the lack of shooting or, or you know the need for more shooting. That is true for Oregon, 100% mm-hmm. true. But both Kuznard and Bartholomew, they took big jumps in conference play when they got back from injury. And then they started to get their legs under them. Bartholomew was a 43% or 42% three-point shooter in conference games this season. He was lethal from three. Yeah. And that's when he kind of got into his groove again after missing that long stretch in November and December with injuries. He got into his groove and he found himself, his legs got under him, and he became the good shooter that Oregon was expecting. Um, you, you add another couple shooters to the mix, and now all of a sudden – your pieces fit better. And I think next year's team could, could be really good. Like 
top 10 good? I don't probably, I wouldn't say preseason top 10. No way. No. Could they have the potential to get there? Yes. But they Why should not? be a team that, in my opinion, that's a preseason top 25 team if the right pieces come back. Yeah, I agree. Uh, real quick, how are we doing on time? You got, I got a couple more questions for you. You good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I may be putting you on the spot here a little bit, and I'm not sure that anyone has a confident answer to this question, so I don't want you to feel like you can just share anything you're not supposed to, but you've been on this so far. You've been, you've been a guy that's on this, and I trust your information. Oregon's 2023 signing class is currently at three players. Do you think it will eventually climb to four? I think you probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, Bronny James would be the fourth guy. Um, I think, look, I I said this on Twitter last night when Mm -hmm. the McDonald's all American game happened. Um, it's just one game, but it was the game. It was like the most popular all-star game there is. And Bronny went five of eight on shooting three pointers. Um, those were all his attempts. He finished the game with 15 points. He looked really good as a shooter. Um, I thought, so you don't want to make two wide overarching impressions, takeaways from a one game sitting, but in the one game that we've saw, you know, from him at a competitive level against the best of the best, he was a really good shooter. I thought he wasn't um, really all that impressive running the point and transition. He had a couple, he had multiple turnovers that were pretty bad. Um, but I think he can be maybe like your third option as a point guard, you know, emergency fill-in type guy, but defended the ball well. Um, and if you're Dana Altman and you're someone that says, we need to add three-point shooting, we need to add shooting to the mix, I think he, at least in a one-game situation, showed he could do that. Um, you talk about guys that love to get better. What's been like the biggest thing with Bronny James the last – 18 24 months is everyone says wow he's a lot better than he was this time last season or wow Mm -hmm. he's taking a big jump in the last six months you don't do that without spending time in the gym and and having that commitment to being you know a good practice player and and to get better um it's going to be a fascinating storyline to see play out this spring because i don't think you can bring Bronny james in and I'm going to use the word circus and that's not fair to Bronny James, but the attention that's going to come with Bronny James, it's going to be crazy. Like Mm -hmm. the the school that he plays for that first game of the year that he plays will be on ESPN. Even if it's, if it is Oregon, Oregon could play Southeast Missouri state Northwest. And that game's going to be on ESPN, ESPN two or ESPN. You, you almost Mm -hmm. guarantee it. Mm -hmm. Um, or Fox Sports, if they can get the game over ESPN, which I highly doubt. Um, there's going to be so much attention with that. And so if you're going to bring a guy in and Bronny James, he's going to have to play. Because I compare this to Justin Flo. This past season, a lot of the linebackers at Oregon did not want to talk with the media because all the media really wanted to talk about was Justin Flo, Justin Flo, Justin Flo. How's he doing? What's he looking like? Is he making plays? And this was during fall camp and the first maybe half of the season. And we in the media kind of figured out halfway through the year why so many linebackers just didn't want to talk to us because yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of questions about Justin Flo when they knew Justin Flo sucked. Like he wasn't good. And it just didn't fit. You don't, yes. You don't want to bring that same type of attention to this team. The worst case scenario would be Bronny James shows up. You've also added a couple transfers that play the same position. And while Bronny James is good and is solid, um, he's playing 12 minutes a game. <laughs> and how does that handle it? LeBron James has been very vocal, like on social media, about Bronny, you know, having to play or you know, Bronny being a first round draft pick and whatnot, and. You know, the media is going to want to come and talk about Brian James, but what's that dynamic going to look like? Is he okay playing 12 minutes a game? Is the team going to be okay with a guy getting 12 minutes a game, generating so much media interest and hype around him when he's not the best player? 
So that's where it's like, this is where it gets really interesting is I think he helps Oregon 100%. Mm-hmm. But you're already asking three freshmen to be key pieces to your team. And Shellstad Evans and um, Mookie Cook. How many teams rely on three, let alone four freshmen, being their top four or five guys? Not many successful so ones. I, yeah. So, like, I, I think the only way LeBron or Bronny James comes to Oregon is if we see some roster turnover, um, at the, especially at the guard positions, where Oregon says, not only do we want you, we need you now because we don't have enough bodies. Yeah. And Bronny is one of your top four, top five guards on the roster. It's going to it's gonna be interesting. I, I personally, like, I think Oregon's right there. Mm-hmm. If Oregon wants him, I think they can get him. Um, I think USC is probably more viable option because they've had some guards transfer out of the program. They need more guards there. They're, it's in LA. It's close to home. So LeBron doesn't even really have to get anywhere. You know, doesn't have to get in a plane to, to go see his son play on an off night that he has with the Lakers in town. Um, I think the G League Ignite is also a very real possibility that they play in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a 45 minute flight from LA to, to Vegas. I think that's a real possibility. I think Oregon's here. I think they're in, they're involved. Um, I think they need to go all in on, on Bronny, but only in the idea that Bronny is going to be your, you know, second guard off the bench um, next season and, and plays 18 minutes a game. But yeah, he can't be, he can't be one of your go-to guys. I mean, Mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe they, maybe they, you know, they do the unthinkable and and you get, you, you get Oregon being that one team that happens maybe every 10 years where it's a bunch of freshmen that, have an insane year and then go through the, the grind of the tournament and get through it. But odds are, money on it. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the odds are, I and mean, just go look at all the teams, not just this season, but the past three or four or five years, yeah. they're yeah. all veteran older teams that have tournament success. And if you go with Bronny, four of your top eight guys are freshmen and that's really hard to do. So for those who don't know, Bronny has taken a, an official visit to Ohio. I think it was an official visit to Ohio State for the Notre Dame game last year. Yeah. I don't believe there have been any other documented visits since then. He's reportedly down to a final three of Oregon, USC, and Ohio State. Um, I wouldn't predict this, but I also would not be completely shocked if Bronny popped up in Eugene at the end of April for the spring game. We've seen Altman use Oregon football games before for recruiting purposes. He had uh, five-star Andre Stoyakovich here for the BYU game last September. Again, I wouldn't predict this would happen. I wouldn't put money on it. But it, if that news came out over the next few weeks that, oh, Bronny scheduled a visit for, for the end of April, that wouldn't completely shock me. Would that shock you? No. Um, personally, I think that would be a good point. It's been a launching point for Oregon in the past. Um, I want to say Mookie Cook and Kwame Evans were here for a spring game as well. I think a couple were. years ago. Yeah. Um, Bronny's profile though, the way things have gone with Bronny, like it was never made available for media day at McDonald's all American. Yeah. It's impossible to being, talk to. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think he's going to be made available at the Nike hoop summit next Friday. Mm-mm. Um, it would go in line then that Bronny just kind of shows up on a, a weekend when there's nothing here That's and true. they, you know, they're able to hide him. Uh, no one really knows when, when he visits, you know, the staff knows the players that are here will, will, would know, but um, it would be a tight, I think that's what, what's going to play it out. And maybe it is for the spring game yeah. and, you know, they hide him in the stands or whatever, or in a box seat, what have you. But um, I, I think if he does visit, it's going to be one of those under the wrap, the Anthony Thomas type style visits where it's clean cut. No one knows he's here. Um, get him in, get him out, get a, you know, get his visit in and spend the most time, you know, with things that really matter instead of getting seen by fans. That will be quite the scoop for whoever gets that. Um, all right, let's end it with this. Which do you believe is more likely to happen a year from now? Either option A, the Ducks make a trip to the Sweet 16 and all happiness is restored in the program, or we see yet another frustrating season and Dana Altman decides to hang them up and retire. 
We're talking next year. Next year, which which of those two do you think is more likely to happen if you had to put money on Sweet it? Sweet sixteen. You think so? Yeah, I think they're a tournament team next year. Um, I, I, the Sweet Sixteen aspect of it gives me pause. Um, but Dane Altman hanging it up after a third frustrating season gives me a bigger pause. Um, yeah. This is a man that when they lost to Utah Valley and he comes out and goes, gosh, darn it, we ruined Christmas. And then <laughs> like a week later when um, they get ready for the Oregon State game on the 31st and he's out here saying like, I'm just still steaming over that Utah Valley loss and seeing my grandkids open their Christmas presents still couldn't bring a smile to my face. Like, <laughs> that's not a man that's ready to, to hang it up and call it quits cold turkey. Um, I, I have a very hard time seeing Altman, A, walking away anytime soon, in particular walking away from this recruiting class because I think there's I think there's a real possibility that this was the case with, Kwame, with uh, Khalil Ware. They viewed him as a guy that if he shows up and he's insanely good as a freshman, he's probably gone. But more than likely, we're going to get Khalil Ware for two seasons mm-hmm. in Eugene. Just turns out, I don't think it was a good fit for Oregon. I don't think Khalil was a good fit for Oregon as well. I don't think he liked the season. He clearly wasn't motivated to practice hard, to play hard. Um, it just wasn't going to work out, and so he is left. But I think they viewed him as like a more than likely a two-year guy at Orton, mm-hmm. very similar to the way that they've kind of viewed Biddle, two, maybe three-year guy for Biddle. I think all these freshmen that are coming in, Shell says already on record saying he wants to be a four-year starter at Oregon. So yeah. he's already thinking, I'm going to be a four-year guy. And maybe he plays his way in, whereas a junior he goes pro. But I think Kwame Evans and Mookie Cook, especially with how NIL plays a factor in today's day and age of, of athletics, I think both those guys, too, are multi-year players at Oregon, unless Mm -hmm. it's just a disastrous fit like it was with Kalel Ware, which I don't think it will be, or they just play out of their minds their first season, which I don't think fits their style of play either. Anyways, like this kind of goes back to the expectation thing. Shell says the lowest rated guy of the three. I think he's got the the highest probability of making like a statistically – bigger impact than those other two guys. I think Cook and Evans are two energy guys. A lot of what Dana Altman talks about, we didn't make the hustle plays. We didn't make the dirty effort plays uh, to win these games. That's offensive rebounding or defensive rebounding, block shots, deflections. Deflections, yeah. Yeah, creating assists. I think that's the strength of Cook. I think that's the strength of Evans. These are two guys that they can can make the occasional corner three or or the the swing pass when they're on the wing for a jump shot three-pointer. But these aren't guys that are going to, you know, dribble, break down their defender and pull up jumper for their own shot. They're, I'm going to grab an offensive rebound, I'm going to dunk it, or I'm going to make a good cut, and this guy's going to feed me a lob or bounce pass for a dunk. Uh, or I'm just going to go get the ball on a steal and then transition down the court for a dunk. These are hustle play guys. Those those types of players aren't the guys that are one and dones. You know, they're the guys that take that gradual step, gradual step, gradual step, and then they get better, they get better, and the next thing you know, all of a sudden that they're a tournament team. Uh, they're they're an NBA p- prospect. Um, Jalen Wilson from, from Kansas is a very good example of that. Um, a guy that, you know, you look at his career, high-profile recruit coming in out of Texas. You know, his freshman year, I think he got hurt. But his sophomore year, just 11 points. His junior year, just 11 points. And then he exploded this past season as a senior with 20 mm-hmm. points a game. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's kind of what I think these freshmen are going to be like. And I don't think Altman's going to walk away from a two- or three-year stint with a Shellstead, Cook, Evans, Biddle, you know, four, four-man combo of potentially having those guys for two years together. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It feels like if there was any time where he would have, you know, decided to hang him up and that he didn't want to do this anymore, it would have been after this year. But then we heard him after that Wisconsin game, we heard the fire in his voice and him saying like, I don't want to leave. I, I still want to be here. I still want to do this. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't see him uh, leaving anytime soon within like the you know, next 
like you said, the next three or four years, maybe a little bit longer than that. So um, real quick before we leave, what is the number one thing you're looking to see in the spring game a few weeks from now? Spring game, um, probably what they have at the offensive line positions and okay. then what the backup quarterbacks look like. Okay. Um, I think that'll be an important piece to know of who is behind Bo Nix and is it is the pro- is progress being made where you feel comfortable about one of those two guys being your starter in 2024? Correct. And a lot can change from spring to the end of the 2023 season. I understand that, but you know you want to see progress with those two yep. guys and Austin Nova said and Ty Thompson. And so it'd be just the development of the offensive line, how they protect Bonix, you know how how good do they look, and then what does the options behind Bonix look like? Yeah, I think, and this isn't something you quite will see a ton of in the spring game, but I'm just really curious to see what we. What the difference is with Will Stein compared to Kenny Dillingham? I know that we, yeah. I mean, we're going to see such a vanilla uh, scheme in the spring game because they're not going to show any of their cards, and rightfully so, they, sh- they shouldn't. But I'm just very curious to see over the next several months how he differs from Will or from Kenny Dillingham. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's to, a lot to talk about to see, over the to next see few play months out with spring football. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we could do a whole podcast for an hour about yes. things to talk, you know, things to watch with that. So very easily, uh, you, you know, I, I gave you two and it could have, you know, I could have picked six yeah. or seven other options. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again to Matt Preem for joining us today and putting on a, putting a bow on the ducks basketball season. Again, if you aren't already a subscriber to duck territory or a listener to the Austin audibles podcast, I don't really know what you're doing. Uh, Matt, Eric, and Jared do a great work, and uh, with spring football coming back in a matter of days, now is the time to start tuning back in. So, Matt, may you hit fairways and greens later this afternoon. Uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Again, a big thanks to Matt Preem for coming on and talking hoops. I will be back on next week as we get back into the uh, the football season and the Ducks return to the gridiron, and we ramp up towards the spring game at the end of April. Thank you guys for listening and following along. If you want to check out more of my work, you can find it as always at duckswire.usatoday.com. Follow me on Twitter at Zachary C. Neal. We will talk to you guys next week. Until then, take it easy.